Uh, for those of you who may not be aware, we have a nursery and kids class available every Sunday. Uh, kids, you're w- more than welcome to make your way to that class at this time. It just uh, meets in the back of this larger room where all the kids are running at this time. And then our nursery meets off in the corner room over here and is fully staffed every Sunday. You're more than welcome to make use of that. And uh, also want to let you know that your kids are also always welcome to stay right here in the worship service uh, as well. I want to invite you to join me in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. Uh, we worked our way through the book of 1 Corinthians last year uh, for, over the course of several months. And so we've uh, been through this portion of scripture before and looked at the passage that we're going to look at this morning within its larger context. This morning we're just going to hone in on a few verses together, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, not that far from our house, someone is constructing a massive white mansion And they have set up just recently a set of beautiful gates uh, that swing open uh, either to grant access to some or in contrast to that, at times they may stand firm denying access to others. And of course, that's what gates do. Uh, Do you know that God has a house, so to speak? He has an eternal dwelling and a resting place for his family with an endless number of rooms. In fact, Jesus described this place this way in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. And it's actually a beautiful picture implying that there is no shortage of space in God's house. There's an endless number of room, uh, of rooms. There's, there's no shortage of space in heaven. However, there is a gate and it's the only place of entrance into the family or household of God. There, there aren't all these different places uh, through which you can gain access into the presence of God. There's only one way to enter God's eternal presence. There's only one way to enter His rest. There's only one way to enter His kingdom. There's only one way to be cleansed of your sin and to have eternal life in heaven with God for all of eternity. And the gate, so to speak, bars entrance to some and grants it to others. You might think of salvation, in a sense, being kind of like a gated community. Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, or I am the road, I'm the path. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. According to the words of Jesus, there's only one way. There aren't a million and one different ways to have eternal life in heaven and dwell with God in his house for all of eternity. Elsewhere, Jesus used uh, the agricultural picture of a sheep pen. Uh, He said this in John chapter 10, verse 9. He said, I am the gate. It's me. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. You might think of these gates as having a name above them, and and that name would just very simply be Jesus. And you might think of each gate as having an emblem on it. Uh, You think of two gates swinging open, and either one of those gates is an emblem that says something. On the one side of the gate are the words, His death. And then on the other side are the words, His resurrection. Alternatively, the gates might read, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. You enter into the household of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the gate. He is the way. And that's the only way that anyone ever comes 
and to the household or family of God through Jesus Christ himself. You must enter salvation through the gate. I want you to follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 3 to 8. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says this. He said, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And the Apostle Paul writes this in verse 8, Last of all, he appeared to me as to one untimely born. He also appeared to me. Uh, What I'd like to do this morning is basically look at each of those gates that I was just referencing, so to speak, in that imagery. And on the one side of the gate is his death, the death of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 begins, For I, the Apostle Paul, delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And he's about to articulate the most important elements of the gospel or the good news about what Jesus did. And verses 3 to 4 focus specifically on the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died. And we spent Good Friday focusing on that together. Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, took on flesh and blood. He took on a human body. He had always been. But at a point in time, he came to earth and took on flesh and blood and died on the cross. And he suffered and he bled and died. And verse 3 says two things about his death. First, it explains about his death that he died for our sins. Christ died in our place on the cross to atone for our sins so that we could be cleansed. We couldn't atone for our own sins. Jesus had to die in our place and on our behalf. The verse says that Christ died for our sins. And I just ask you to listen as I read several verses that connect the death of Jesus Christ to our sins. Again and again and again, the Bible is going to tie those two things together. The death of Jesus with our sins, they coincide, they they go together. So just listen, I'm going to read several verses that connect these two things. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says of Jesus that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The tree is a reference to the cross. Why? That, That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Romans 5 verse 8 also connects the death of Jesus to our sins. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 Peter chapter 3, 18, it says, For Christ also suffered, that's speaking of his work on the cross, Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's Jesus. For the unrighteous, that's us. Why? That he might bring us to God. And in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, verse 5, will again connect the suffering of Jesus with our sins. It says, But he was pierced. 
for our transgressions. They drove nails through his hands and through his feet. He was pierced for our transgressions. That's a big word for sin. He was crushed for our iniquities, another big word for sin. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then Romans 4, verse 25. Again, all these verses just keep connecting the cross with our sin. Romans 4, 25 says, Who was delivered up, he was handed over for our trespasses. Another massive word for our sins. And he was raised for our justification. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that we could have forgiveness of sins. Galatians 1 verse 4 says, Who, speaking of Jesus, gave himself. He gave himself as a gift on the cross. Why? For our sins. To deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And Hebrews 9, verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear or carry the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, again and again, the scriptures give us the answer. Can you answer that question? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 tells us in three little words, he died on the cross for our sins. And so let's make it personal. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus died on the cross so that you could be cleansed and forgiven and washed of your sins. All of them. That's why Jesus died, for our sins. Verse 3 says that Christ died according to the Scriptures. Meaning this, it wasn't some kind of unplanned accident. You know, life is just happening 2,000 years ago, and Jesus got on the wrong side of things, and next thing you know, he was being crucified. That's not what the Bible says or teaches. Verse 3 here says that he died according to the Scriptures. It was not some kind of unplanned accident. The Old Testament scriptures had been pointing to it all along. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus Christ was buried. It says this in verse 4. It said, uh, Here's the, the message that the Apostle Paul preached. That Christ died and that he was buried. And that simple fact verified his death. You remember the soldier took the spear and poked it into his side to confirm that he was truly dead. And then he was taken down from the cross. He was wrapped up in in claws and laid in a tomb where one would expect that he would begin to rot and decay. He died and he was buried. You must enter salvation through the gate, and one of those gates that swings open is the death of Jesus Christ. That's one side of the gate that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. But that's really, you know, we talk about these two gates swinging open and over them being these words, Jesus, so to speak. As these gates swing open, that's just one of, one of the sides. The other side is his resurrection. That's the second side of the gate. Today is Easter. 
where we celebrate that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Jesus Christ was raised. Look at verse 4. It says, That he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, Jesus rose from the grave, and he is alive today. And the text declares facts about Christ's resurrection. First, it declares this fact, that he was raised on the third day. He was placed in the tomb, and then he rose triumphantly Sunday morning. And while that caught everyone off guard, Jesus had predicted that that very thing would happen. Before Jesus died, he said this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. He said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. You remember that story from the Old Testament? That this prophet Jonah gets thrown overboard from uh, a, a ship. And then this massive fish comes and swallows him alive. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jesus said, so will the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But long before Jesus said anything about his resurrection, the Old Testament scriptures spoke of it. Verse 4 says he was raised according to the scriptures. Again, none of this is some big accident that's happening and No, 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 this has all been uh, part of the plan of God and spoken about previously in Scripture. Isaiah 53 spoke of the Messiah dying as a sacrificial lamb for the iniquities of us all. And then that very same passage goes on to describe activity after death. Christ was raised. And the text goes on to say that Jesus Christ appeared. Verse 5 begins, and that he appeared. The bodily appearances of Jesus verified his resurrection. You have these four statements in this passage, uh, that he died, that he was buried, uh, that he rose, and that he appeared. And, And the first and third are the big statements of what happened. He died and he rose. And the second and the fourth statements basically are the proof of the of the of the the first statements. How do we know that he died? Well, he was buried. How do we know that he rose? Well, he appeared to tons of people. This passage doesn't even come close to mentioning all of the resurrection appearances. It just mentions a few of them. And we want to look at the ones that this text mentions together and and just take note of a few things about these appearances. After Christ rose, he appeared to Peter and the twelve. Look at verse 5. It says, And that he appeared... Who did he appear to? To Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And then to the twelve. What passage records that appearance? Uh, We already read it this morning. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. Verse 24. Two men were walking down a road together to a place called Emmaus when Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, appeared to them and he started talking to them. At first, they don't know who... They think Jesus is dead. They don't even realize that they are talking to the risen Lord. But eventually, Jesus opens up their eyes and they realize it's Jesus. And afterwards, the men, these two men, spoke to the disciples who said this to them in Luke chapter 24, verse 34. The Lord has risen indeed. 
and has appeared to Simon. And then look at verses 35 and 36. Then they told what had happened on the road. They, they, described, they told the disciples about their time on the road walking with Jesus and how, he had, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Uh, in verse 34, it is this mentioned that Christ had appeared to Peter, and then we see here as well, he's appearing to the disciples. That's also recorded for us a, another account in John chapter 20, verse 19. But Jesus is appearing to real people in real time. Peter and the apostles saw Jesus face to face. On another occasion, he appeared to 500 people. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you look with me at verse 6, It says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time that Paul wrote this letter, though some have fallen asleep or died. Uh, What passage records that appearance to these 500 people or more? Well, this is probably the appearance that took place in Galilee. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. What's significant about that particular appearance? Well, a few things come to mind. Uh, One is just the sheer volume of people that Jesus appeared to all at once and the fact that many of them were still living at the time that Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, You may recall from the Old Testament and Jewish law that the Jewish law required two or three witnesses to substantiate the truth of of an event. And that makes sense. Even in modern law, you don't, you know, when you just have one person's word against another or something like that. Jewish law required two or three witnesses to substantiate the truth of an event. And here we have 500 people that saw Jesus, the text says, at one time. We, we don't have anywhere close to 500 people in this room this morning. But what if there were 500 people here this morning all witnessing the exact same thing? 500 people. At one time, such a number provided overwhelming proof of the resurrection. And in verse six, Paul said that most of whom are still alive at the time that Paul wrote the book of first Corinthians, it was 20 to 25 years after the resurrection. And yet there were still hundreds of firsthand witnesses that could have been interviewed. We'll go. I mean, there were 500 people, though. Go talk to whoever you want. Most of them are still living. You can go interview them. And they would all have said the same thing. I saw him. He's alive. You can go and talk to these people for yourself, Paul is saying. I mean, as Paul writes this, it's not some kind of contested thing. All 500 of these people, they were there. They saw it. And you might think, well, maybe all those people were just seeing something that they wanted to see. When I was a boy, Santa came to our house one night before Christmas to see us. And he was right there at our back door. I mean, I I remember it very clearly. He had come inside and he was talking to my parents and he was talking to my siblings and me and we were all excited. And it's just a few days before Christmas and he was asking us what we wanted for Christmas. And somewhere in that conversation, it came up like, you know, Santa, where did you park your sleigh? And um, he, he told us. 
And he explained that he had parked his sleigh right over there on the neighbor's roof. And he invited me to look out into the night sky for myself and look and see it. Well, I don't remember how old I was, early elementary school. I smashed my face up against the back door window and I cut my hands around my eyes to block out all the light so I could see clearly into the dark sky. And I looked at my neighbor's roof and I could not find it. I was looking and I was looking and I was looking. And then I saw a light or something and I said, I see it. I see it. The funny thing was, I never really saw the Santa sleigh. But I had convinced myself that I had. I mean, Santa was right there. I wanted to see that sleigh. Well, maybe that's what these 500 people did. I mean, Jesus' followers, they want him to be king. They want to believe in the supernatural and this, that, and the other. Maybe they just sort of, it was something like what you just described. Well, that's not how Scripture describes it. And further, such an argument simply does not line up with some of the other people that Jesus appeared to. People like James and people like Paul, or should I say people, once, a person once named Saul. Jesus appeared next, we read in verse 7, to James and all the apostles. Look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James? Remind me again who James is. Well, he's the half-brother of Jesus. And the gospel accounts recorded that prior to Jesus' death, James was not a believer in Jesus. He's not thinking of him as being like the Jewish Messiah. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah or the Savior. John chapter 7, verse 5 said, For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' family, they're not seeing it. And if you've been with us in our study of Mark, we saw back in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that his brothers were saying these specific words. He is out of his mind. Jesus is crazy. James thought Jesus was crazy. But the scriptures tell us that after Jesus rose from the grave, who did he appear to? James. What's significant about this appearance? Well, James was never the same. Acts 1.14 records these words. It says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and guess who else? And his brothers. James appears to have come to faith in Jesus because of an appearance of the resurrected Christ. James saw Jesus risen from the grave, and from that point on, James believed. And he eventually wrote the book of James in our Bibles, which he opened uh, in, in that book by describing himself this way. Here's a man who was saying about Jesus, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. In fact, I kind of wouldn't mind disassociating with him a little bit right now. Well, here's what James said. Here's how he described himself in James chapter 1, verse 1. James a servant or slave of God. You might think God the Father, God of the Old Testament. James, a servant or slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see a major shift in the tone of James and what he's saying? 
He's mocking Jesus one day. He's saying he's crazy. He's trying to salvage his brother, save his brother from himself. And now he's saying about Jesus that Jesus Christ is Lord. James believed. He recognized the lordship of Jesus and and then went on to become a herald of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Finally, in our passage, Jesus appeared to Paul. Look at verse 8. Last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We'll look at this account together. Paul previously went by another name. He was called Saul. And Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says of Saul, it says Saul was ravaging the church. That's uh, ravage is kind of a word you might use for a wild animal or beast just devouring or destroying something. Saul is like this wild animal destroying the followers of Jesus, the church. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He is trying to completely and totally destroy any and every follower of Jesus Christ. Paul hated Christians. But in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, we have the account that Paul is referencing in 1 Corinthians 15. So follow along as I read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, that's Jesus, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, in other words, if he found any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This man is on a mission to destroy anything and everything related to Jesus. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He's trying, who is talking to me? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Jesus appeared to Saul. What, what, what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 15, it's this account, what happened on this road where he went from being uh, an intense, uh, just crazy, ravenous person trying to destroy the church and hating Jesus. And then after this moment, that's no, he's realizing, no, no, Jesus is Lord. He is the Messiah, He was radically converted. What's significant about this appearance? Well, what I just shared with you there, and then Acts 1.22 records that the other apostles 
were with Jesus after, or from his baptism to his ascension. You think about uh, the 12 apostles or the 11. Once you take Judas out of the equation, they were with Jesus all along. From his baptism all the way through, up until his ascension into heaven. Paul was the exception to that. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was untimely born. The risen Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus after Christ had already ascended up into heaven. And he, in his own words, was born. We might say reborn. He had been born physically already. He was born again with new life. And from then on, Paul spent his life testifying to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he counted that to be his highest privilege. The very thing that he was trying to destroy, the church and the followers of Jesus Christ, became the thing that he spent the rest of his life building. The appearances are proof of the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, the proof is not only found in the fact uh, that these people saw Jesus and that they testified to that. But the proof is also found in the fact that he forever changed their lives. And he has been doing that in the lives of people ever since. Person after person after person after person. Taking their lives and radically changing it. The resurrected Lord saves and then he changes people. I love the story of Louis Zamperini. I think I've shared that with you a couple times. You may be familiar with this story from the book or movie Unbroken. Louis Zamperini is often remembered for being an Olympic runner, for surviving 47 days adrift at sea during World War II, and then surviving uh, terrible, terrible conditions and mistreatment as a prisoner of war. But after the war, he was a huge mess. He was tormented by his past experiences as a prisoner of war. He was tormented by dreams and nightmares. He began to drink heavily. His marriage was in trouble. And in 1949, he attended a Billy Graham crusade, and he heard the gospel. He heard about Jesus and his work on his behalf. And Louis Zamperini trusted in Christ's work on the cross, his death and resurrection for him. And Louis Zamperini was forever changed. In fact, he forgave his captors. He started telling people about Jesus. The gospel radically changes and transforms people's lives. And it's not just famous people. Very ordinary, everyday people. And it's all powerful proof of the resurrection. Jesus was very, very clear. You must enter salvation through the gate. And Jesus said, I am that gate. And one side of that gate is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the grave. He died one side of the gate. He rose the other. The question becomes, how does one walk through those gates? And I want you to look down at verse 11. I know we're skipping over a few verses here, but basically what the Apostle Paul is saying, this message that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose, that he appeared... Basically, from that point, Paul said, myself and other apostles have been testifying to that. And in verse 11, he says, whether then it was I or they, other apostles, so we preach. This is the message. We're all preaching the same thing, that Jesus died and that he rose. He died for sins and he rose from the grave. So we preach 
That's the message. And so you believed. It's that message that you trusted in, where you believe. How does one walk through the gates? You walk through the gates of salvation by trusting this message that we've just looked at, that Jesus died and he rose. He died for your sins and he rose from the grave. That, that's it. Like That is the message. There's not a bunch of other stuff added to it. Like you got to work really hard and you got to do this and you got to get yourself through the gates. No, the gates are the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the gate and he's the one who swings them open for you. How do you walk through them? You go, you recognize, well, this is the gate and this is the only way in. This is the only way to have my sins forgiven. This is the only way for me to be cleansed. This is the only way for me to enter God's rest and his kingdom and his family and his presence. You can't go through those gates with covered in your sin. It's your sin that keeps you outside those walls, outside those gates, outside that kingdom. And yet there's this cross where Jesus died for those sins and he he rose victoriously from the grave and the gates come open for anyone who will come to those gates and say, yes, this is the only way. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. This is the only way I believe. And I I want to go through these gates. And if you will do that, if you will put your trust in the work of Jesus Christ, if you will just pray to God and say, God, I do believe. I trust that Jesus died on the cross for me and that what he did was enough and it was sufficient to save and cleanse me. And I do believe that he's God and that he rose from the grave and he's alive. That's what the Corinthians did. Paul says, whether then it was I or somebody else preaching that message, either way, it was preached and you believed. And so I want to ask you, what about you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that there's only one way to be right with God and to have eternal life in heaven and that is through the work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection? The Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe what you need to do today on this very special weekend is just cry out to God and say, God, I believe, will you save me from my sin and give me new life and change me like you've changed so many people already. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes people. And so many of you would sit here and you'd say, I I have walked through those gates, so to speak. And Jesus has begun to change my life is he changing you still right now is the gospel the good news of jesus changing you like it should it should never stop changing you it should never stop changing me it's the, this is this message is the power of god in our lives and are you testifying of it after these people saw jesus christ risen from the grave they ran and testified And just as Cody prayed this morning, that testifying has happened down through the generations again and again. And it has gone through time and it has gone throughout the world. People testifying that Jesus Christ has died, that he was buried, that he rose, and that he appeared. And that he is the way of salvation. Are you testifying to it?
I want you to think about this as well. The gospel reorients and recalibrates the entire life around it. These men, particularly if you think about James, the brother of Jesus, and you think about Saul, who became Paul, these men were changed. And everything, if you look back over the history of their lives, where did it change? It all came back to Jesus and his death and resurrection. It was that those events completely and totally transformed and reoriented and recalibrated their lives. And I, I just want to ask you right now here today, what is, what is your life calibrated to? What's it oriented to? What is it that's driving your life? Well, I could tell you what it ought to be. It ought to be the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here's what happens sometimes. I think we, um, God miraculously saves us. And, and he grants us eternal life and we're born. And at that point, it's the gospel. It's the death of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that has so radically changed our lives and it starts to be our compass and what's driving everything. And then sometimes over the course of time and life being lived and we get distracted or we, we, our life starts to get oriented to something else. And maybe it's a career or a relationship or we get fixated on some trouble and that just becomes everything. It could be anything. But whatever it is, our, our life shifts away from the focus that it ought to be. And we're not really holding zero anymore. And I think that one of the greatest things that could happen for anyone sitting here as a Christian this morning is that you look at this weekend and you ask yourself, is my life actually calibrated to that? What this weekend is all about? The death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when your life is focused on that and it's calibrated to that and that becomes the lens through which everything is seen and done and lived, then it's a whole lot different when, when, that, than the, when there's this drift and you're in need of calibration. When your life has been reoriented around Jesus Christ, it impacts your relationship to sin. Right? If the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins is what's driving and motivating you and shaping your life, well, then how does that change your relationship to sin? I can't hold on to this. I can't cherish this. I can't keep doing this. Or relationships with other people that have broken and fallen apart. The cross brings us to God and, and in so doing brings us to each other. And a sweet harmony and unity. Maybe it's Sorrow and pain and something that's gone on recently just is consuming your heart. You have suffered. You are grieving. You, you feel as if you are just internally broken and at the end of you. And those things, the hardships of life, they can just consume you and grab your heart and sap your joy and take all of that away. 
But as, as you read Paul's letters and what happened for him, he just kept going back to basically this weekend in the life of Jesus, his death and resurrection. And from that point, he had hope. That Christ rose first, which means we're all going to rise. That there's life beyond the grave and there's hope and joy and peace. I read a verse about Christ coming again. He came once to deal with sin, but when he comes again, he's already done that. He's coming to redeem us and make the world right. Are are you living your life uh, driven and motivated by the gospel and seeing your life through that lens? Or is it just kind of some tertiary thing that you've got going on on the side that Jesus died and he rose for you? This is the heart of our faith and the heart of the Christian life. And it ought to transform everything that we do and how we live. You enter salvation through the gate, Jesus Christ, and you continue to live that salvation out by the grace of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to say something with me this morning, a familiar phrase. Uh, But join me, if you would. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Would you bow your head and pray with me at this time?